You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Upon this day, a tale unfolds so grand, the Babin-Lucas bill in space takes flight. A commercial venture, Stars Command, in Sonnet's verse, its story I recite. The White House I, with counsel keenly shared, suggests changes to the cosmic plan. In corridors of power, decisions aired, shaping the destiny of mortal man. Yet hark, SpaceX, the herald of the sky, blessed by the fish and wildlife's decree. In Boca Chica, where dreams dare fly, excitement blooms, unfurls with jubilee. In Sonnet's dance, the day's events declare a cosmic tale, a saga in the air. T-minus, 20 seconds to LOS, Go Today is November 15th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-minus. is going to have new space authority in the U.S. Industry supports commitment to not conduct ASAT tests. ULA closes in on a new owner. And our guest today is Kara Kunzeman, Systems Director for Strategic Foresight at Aerospace Corporation. And now on to today's Intel briefing. And let us not to the marriage of two bills admit impediments. And if you want to know why I've been speaking in sonnets, you'll have to join me for the end of today's show. (laughs) And a quick recap that the very eagerly awaited commercial space bill from Representatives Babin and Lucas of the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee was introduced earlier this month. And amongst the many issues that bill is trying to address— One of them was to make the Office of Space Commerce its own entity within the Department of Commerce. For the Babin-Lucas bill, that's their answer on who should authorize and supervise missions of non-governmental U.S. agencies, a.k.a. commercial space companies, to operate craft or other objects in space. Right now, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle of who owns what part of the whole space ecosystem— 
the Department of Transportation, NOAA, the FAA, the Department of Commerce, and on and on and on. It's confusing. And for many commercial space companies, navigating it all is burdensome. So for Babin and Lucas, the answer to the friction here is to centralize as much as possible via the Commerce Department and to make the Office of Space Commerce the sole authority done and dusted. But according to an article today in Breaking Defense, the White House National Space Council today has made their own legislative proposal that offers a different take. It does try to reduce the overhead confusion, but instead of giving all authorization and supervision powers to the Commerce Department, it proposes splitting the duties with the Department of Transportation as well. According to that Breaking Defense article, the DOT basically gets authority over launch and reentry for humans as well as cargo, including point-to-point on Earth or in space, including refueling on orbit or even to the lunar surface. And then the Department of Commerce gets basically everything else, in space assembly and manufacturing, space debris removal, as well as space traffic coordination and collision avoidance. The new draft bill from the National Space Council is still in the very early stages of being introduced to key stakeholders, so we'll keep an eye on both the Babin-Lucas bill as well as the National Space Council proposals as they make the rounds. The Secure World Foundation has released a statement urging nations to commit to not conducting destructive anti-satellite testing, known as ASAT. Among the 26 signatories from nine nations were SATCOM operators Amazon Kuiper, Iridium, and Utelsat. According to the statement, these commitments build upon the resolution named Destructive Direct Ascent Anti-Satellite Missile Testing, which was passed by the UN General Assembly in December 2022 by a recorded vote of 155 in favor to nine against. The Secure World Foundation says DAASAT tests directly threaten the safety of space systems and the long-term sustainability of the environment within which they operate. They go on to state that these tests can create long-lasting orbital debris, which threatens national assets, commercial spacecraft, human spaceflight platforms, and many of the space-based services humanity uses on a daily basis. You can read the full statement and see the signatories by following the link in our show notes. And you know, this has been a topic of discussion since the intended sale was announced last year. Who will buy the United Launch Alliance? The joint venture between Lockheed Martin and Boeing is said to be near to closing in on a buyer. And that's according to a report by Eric Berger in Ars Technica, who says that ULA has narrowed the field to a private equity fund, Blue Origin, and an unnamed but reportedly, quote, well-capitalized aerospace firm that is interested in increasing its space portfolio. Ars Technica says that they have it from two sources that the sale period is nearing its conclusion, and a buyer could be announced within a couple of months. Some news out of the Space Tech Expo Europe in Bremen, which is ongoing right now. Space transportation company Don Aerospace has announced a new expansion to France. Dawn, which has locations in the Netherlands, New Zealand, and the U.S., announced the formation of a new subsidiary called Dawn Aerospace France SAS, based in Toulouse. Dawn's Toulouse office will initially focus on customer support, business development, and R&D. There's no time to lose. To add to yesterday's high-impulse suborbital launch announcement, the German rocket company has today announced its plans for orbital launches from Saxevoort Spaceport in Scotland in 2025. High Impulse has carried out an extensive series of engine tests in Shetland over the last three years. 
Although High Impulse will attempt its maiden suborbital launch early next year from Australia, they signed a letter of intent to conduct two suborbital launches from Saxivord from August 2024 onwards. Agile Space Industries has delivered an experimental AX-19 preburner for Sierra Space in 19 weeks. Sierra Space contracted with Agile to design, develop, manufacture, and test a hydrazine-rich preburner for their VRM5500H engine. And a word of warning if you're looking for a fabulous static burn test, this isn't your usual visual explosion, but Agile says that this is the first time a hydrazine-rich preburner has been developed or used in an engine, which is an exciting time for you propulsion nerds. Momentus has released its third quarter financial reports. The company has raised approximately $16.9 million in gross proceeds over the last two months. Two registered direct offerings of common stock were successfully executed, which resulted in an aggregate of $9 million in gross proceeds. Momentus also raised gross proceeds of $1.35 million on October 17th and $6.5 million on November 9th from the exercise of common stock purchase warrants previously issued by the company. Their CEO, John Rood, said in a statement that our technology is performing, we are earning the trust of new customers, and we have repeat customers, which reflects the cost-effective and reliable services we provide. And a wee update to conclude today's briefing on... The Fish and Wildlife Agency has concluded their investigation at SpaceX's Boca Chica site. Starship's second flight really could be as early as this Friday. The FAA launch license page is being gently hugged by all the traffic from space nerds hitting refresh. And as of the time of this recording, the launch license has not yet been granted. With the FAA saying, no, I will be the pattern of all patients. I will say nothing. And that concludes our briefing for today. There's always more information available on all the stories we've mentioned through links in our show notes. We'd like to be generous and add a few extra, so today there's an announcement for a new astronaut training program, a piece from Greg Autry on customers seeking launch options, and a final piece on the LA Hard Tech 50. All the links can be found at space.n2k.com and just click on this episode title. AT minus crew, if you find this podcast useful, please do us a favor and share a five-star rating and a short review in your favorite podcast app. That'll help other space professionals like you to find the show and join the T minus crew. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our guest today is Kara Kunzeman, Systems Director for Strategic Foresight at the Aerospace Corporation. And Kara calls herself a futurist. 
So I started by asking her what that means in this role. I like to think of myself as like an applied futurist that does strategy, right? So I'm a strategist first. It's important to have vision about the future and considerations about possibilities that haven't happened yet because that's what's needed to drive transformation. So for me, futures is an essential component to doing strategy effectively in today's fast-changing, uncertain, unpredictable environment. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Could you walk me through a little bit about what Project North Star is and, and, and sort of what came about from that? Yeah, so I actually, it's really funny to talk about like, okay, how did a rocket scientist turn into running a project about the future of democracy? (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit of a a journey, yeah? (laughs) It is, but actually the link is pretty obvious um, once you pull back the layers. So, you know, my team has been supporting a wide variety of space and national security considerations um, over the years, but we kept hitting this wall this wall of where are we going as a nation? What do we want? What are we trying to achieve? And what ends up happening, right, is we look at the local minimum and just try to address the kind of immediate answers. And if we continue to keep doing that, we're limiting our ability to really do much bigger transformational things that can uplift our people. And um, and so we thought, you know what, there's something interesting here about the value that strategic foresight and the whole process brings, it's naturally inclusive. It naturally encourages divergent and diverse thinking. It has people who may not agree, right, ideologically or politically, you can get them in the same room to talk about what ifs. And that brings empathy, that brings creativity. So we're like, let's run a pilot program to see if maybe strategic foresight can help advance the way our nation does strategy. And so that's what our report really summarizes as key findings. It was a pilot program, so obviously needs to be scaled. But I think it's extraordinarily encouraging and hopeful that we demonstrated that, like, you know what? There are different approaches for us to do it. We just have to be willing and cognizant uh, that our current incentive systems are holding us back. So that's what that study is all about. And I really view that as the starting point for a lot of the work that we're going to continue in the future. You've mentioned a few times about your team. It sounds like that's something that maybe um, maybe you want to tell me a bit about your team as well before we get into the the what's next part. So I am very fortunate where I I work in a job that did not exist six years ago, and now I've created a team of a whole new slew of jobs and responsibilities that didn't exist year you know just even a few years ago. And so we're we're a relatively new directorate and. We are very multifaceted, and we're looking to even grow into uh, a wider variety of expertise. So we have a few of us, uh, uh, you know, scraggly engineers, systems engineers uh, by by training. Space is our background. Um, We have a plasma physicist um, and and a strategist and and somebody who's uh, incredibly competent on the commercial and venture capitalist side of the house. We just hired our first space lawyer with a theater background. That's cool. Very excited. <laughs> That's uh, she's cool. incredible. She's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and then we also have an intelligence analyst um, and national security thought leader. And um, that diversity of thought of coming in from different parts of the industry 
of different ways of approaching problems, different ways of writing, different ways of networking has just really been so incredible. I'm, I, you know, we've been as a team probably about two to three years, but I'm seeing just that, that diversity helping us really push the envelope in a lot of new ways and everything about foresight when it's done right. You see, this is the other thing, you know, you asked about what is a futurist. I see a lot of lone futurists out there. And that actually is, if you're doing strategic foresight, it's a team sport. And you need a lot of diverse thought to get to the insights, to get to moving organizations that have been stagnant. So you've got this incredible group of people together, led by yourself, um, and you're tackling these incredible, I mean, these are some, sometimes can be very abstract thoughts, but then, you're, you know, we have to bring them to like what the what's next of now. So yeah, like what, what are you trying to um, sort of compel people to do? And like, what is the next step for you all right now? Yeah, I mean, other than solving the future of democracy, which is arguably a very challenging problem. No big deal. Um, yeah. You know, bringing, <laughs> no big deal. Um, and I will tell you, I'm, I'm a mom of two under four, and that that actually question is becoming increasingly existential. Um, I will say, you know, bringing it to space, a great example is we actually ran a full-day workshop uh, the day before AIAA kind of kicked off uh, Ascend, um, at the AIAA venue, uh, looking all about how do we make Cislunar a sustainable economic powerhouse. It's a real thing. You know, we have uh, a lot of different whys for why we're going to space and why we're expanding. And now I think many of us have acknowledged, like, this isn't just about science. This is also about economics. It's about tourism. It's about national prestige. It's about national security. It's about a lot of different things. But we need to articulate our whys as a community uh, because that will drive, right, what are we foundationally doing to build there? And I think we all recognize that like every stovepipe acting individually isn't going to get us to scaled off-world presence as fast as we want it. I mean, you could say in some ways we failed, right? Like if you ask anybody that grew up in the 60s and they saw where we are in space today, they would be surprised and not in a good way. You know, on the flip side, I think there's so many incredible opportunities and activities happening today that if we play our cards right and if we're very strategic, we can have this booming, bustling, sustainable, inclusive, uplifting for society activity in space that we would have never imagined. But we have to do it as a broader community and we have to build out that roadmap together. And that's no easy feat because there's a lot, listen, there's a lot of agendas, whether you want to make money, whether you want to, you know, lead in national security, whether you want to just be the best at science. But at the end of the day, right, greatness requires collaboration. And so that actually tied in very well with this year's theme at Ascend. But um, there's a lot of hard work to be done on the economic side, actually, for space. How on earth do we get to where we know we should have been and where we want to go? So, you know, I went into engineering um, because I wanted to solve hard problems. And then over the course of my time as a practicing systems engineer in the space community, I started to really step back and realize, like, the hard problems are these multifaceted network problems, which at the center of it all are around people. People are the hardest part of these problems, whether you want to talk about earth-facing or, or expanding into space. And... Um, it's an art and a science. And so that's, you know, that's kind of what led me into this profession. Um, but, I, you know, I'll be a little biased, but I honestly think the biggest gap, it's not a technological gap, it's not an economic gap, it's a mindset gap. 
You know, not a lot of the typical day-to-day engineer gets to say, what do you want the future of space to look like in 50 years? But if we had more people who could see where they fit in on this greater kind of journey, just imagine, imagine the new ideas, imagine the discussions that would happen, imagine the collaborations outside of stovepipes that would happen because of that. It's something I think about a lot, which sounds weird to say, but I I do think about it a lot because I I have all these different conversations with people who are in various parts of space. And I use space as a very big umbrella in this case. And it is amazing how much it's like there is that cross influence, but it's also um, everyone has their why of what brought them into this world. How do we work together better? But also when we think about the challenges that, that face us, how do we face those in a way that makes sense and collaborates with everyone? So my hat's off to you and your team for for tackling these questions because they are the most important thing. And it is, my goodness, it is a challenge, but it's a very worthy challenge. A big epiphany that I had on stage during our incredible conversation at Ascend where we got to feature a wide, diverse set of authors and, you know, science fiction writers and um, lead strategists in the government was um, this recognition that we all don't necessarily come from a place where we were told from a very young age to believe in ourselves and to believe that anything can happen. And so anything that each of us can do, no matter where we are in our lives, to encourage that kind of thinking in the youth, you want to give back, that's a really easy but high-impact thing to do. So I encourage everybody you know, who's listening to just think about that life that you can touch to just motivate them to think bigger than where they are today. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Welcome back. And yeah, I've been doing a bit of a Shakespeare thing today throughout the show. Why not have a bit of the bard after all, as this year is the 400th anniversary of the publication of Shakespeare's first folio. Yes, back in 1623, seven years after William Shakespeare's death, two of Shakespeare's friends took it upon themselves to publish 36 Mr. William Shakespeare's comedies, histories, and tragedies half of which never appeared published anywhere else. So had the first folio never been published, plays like The Tempest, The Taming of the Shrew, Julius Caesar, and even the Scottish play, yes, Macbeth, would have been lost to time. Can you even imagine? In the posthumous introduction written of Shakespeare in the folio, there's a portrait of Shakespeare a very famous engraving of the Bard by Martin Drieschout that has graced just about every book of his work since, along with a verse by Shakespeare's friend Ben Jonson about the portrait, which said at the end, reader look not on his picture, but his book. Well, actually, 400 years later, look upon his picture too, and specifically that Drieschout portrait, because 
friends, that portrait was sent right to the edge of space recently by director Jack Jewers with the help of UK-based company sent into space via a high-altitude balloon. And according to Sent Into Space, their balloons go up to about 100,000 feet. And for this photo op specifically, the camera captured the Drieschaut engraving portrait of Shakespeare, framed rather beautifully with the infinite cosmos above and the delicate curved earthscape below. And this was all done for a film called Lovers and Madmen that Dewar's made to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the first folio's publication. Along with the Drieschaut portrait of Shakespeare, a Midsummer Night's Dream was also part of the payload. The film itself is a tribute not just to Shakespeare, but also to ingenuity, tenacity, and the artistic spirit. And it uses Shakespeare's writings on the nature of imagination for the narration. And it has none other than Tom Baker performing the reading. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Such tricks at strong imagination. Hmm? That's it for T-Minus for November the 15th. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp, and I'm Maria Varmazas. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.